good morning, diners and travelers. You're listening to On the Menu with Anne and Peter Haig. And today we're bringing a program to you. If you are a drinking man or woman, or would like to know about those who are. Yeah. I didn't know we had interviewed so many people about boozy things. Well, we, we, every, every now and then we must because people come to us demanding that we cover them. So, <laughs> so, so obviously we, well, I mean, we've uh, really we, covered we a lot of ground in this program. Um, we have. We the do. first we guy. We have and we do. Yeah. The, the first guy, um, is, uh, what is it? Spit, spit it 150 out. bars you need to visit before you die. And, and this guy comes to us from Antwerp. In Belgium. Belgium. And, and yeah. he, has, he has he has an unpronounceable. I, I was trying uns, to avoid that. And <laughs> you name, me out. Name oh, for, for his bar. Jürgen Lichkoops. Okay, Cops. so let's so let's hear it for Jürgen. It's really surprising to get a book about 150 of the world's best bars and find out that the majority of them are in England, not in Belgium. How come? Well, Belgium, uh, we are very proud uh, to be in Belgium, but Belgium uh, compared uh, to uh, the UK, compared to the States, well, I think it's just a small city. And uh, But even in a small city, you can find uh, passionate people about bartending. But we have to be honest that I think uh, the way of bartending, the modern style of bartending, its its origins are in the states, North America, and for sure London. Uh, it's a it's a crossover. It's a, it's an arrival point of a lot of cultures, a lot of qualified people there uh, who come there to find a job. And in the hospitality sector, in the hotel, restaurant, and bars, yeah, you can really find very nice places in London. So for us, it's not a surprise. No, uh, uh, you're going. Um, your last name is called Lee Cops. Lee Cops, that's right. And and the book is a very luxurious book called 150 Bars You Need to Visit Before You Die. And these yes. range all over the world. And they're accompanied uh, a lot of information, a lot of guidance in your description of why you need to go there before you die. And some absolutely fabulous photographs of the interiors and uh, with some customers looking very happy, and also recipes for cocktails. Um, Yeah, I think, listeners, you have to see the book uh, to really appreciate what a wonderful guide it would be. Now, I had a question uh, of of the author, is how long did it take you to write this book, and how many bars, I mean, you went... You listed 150. You probably went to a lot more than that. Well, honestly, um, I haven't visited all. Uh, I think I visit 40, 45 bars. I see. Uh, but uh, the bartending world, the bar scene is a small world. And thanks to social media, to the Internet, and, you know, if, if I go to New York, I go to Singapore, I go to London, you always meet uh, a lot of international friends, a lot of international bartenders, journalists, bloggers, and then you you start to talk from, hey, where you come from? Yes, uh, there, there, there. Uh, hi, uh, is there something uh, worth to visit uh, a bar? Yeah, sure, of course. Here is a lot of names. And then uh, I uh, regrouped all the names that I had. I went uh, uh, doing research, and I said, hey, uh, it's not about 150 best cocktail bars, not at all. It's about being special in a way that could be interior. It could be the location. It could be the people behind. It could be the quality. Um, but every bar has a story. Yes. And I'm sure in some bars you could not drink the best cocktail bar, but the view could be maybe extraordinary. Right. And I worked one year on it. So, but really working one year, really going hard on it. Now, what do you what do you do when when you have a real job? Well, uh, my formation, um, I always worked as a sommelier, as a wine waiter. Okay, I was it. two times best sommelier of Belgium, and um, 
And I worked always on two and three Michelin star restaurants in uh, Belgium and France. And uh, my passion is spirit. I'm also a producer of a spirit. Uh, we make a, a Belgian gin. It's uh, called uh, Forest Dry Gin, and he received already two times uh, the first medal of Belgian best gin. And I also produce uh, a Belgian vermouth. So I am a distiller. I'm a, uh, the owner of a bar. And before, I had nine years my own Michelin star restaurant. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I think, already 20 year, uh, 29 years in business. Uh, but if you like your job, you're not counting the years, you're not counting <laughs> the days, you're, not, you're right. not counting the hours. No, I understand completely. When the you're higher, really highly qualified, we know that from your yeah. credentials. The thing that surprised me about, about the book the most, and surely must have been the most challenging thing, is that in on most of the pages and most of the pictures, there are no people. There are absolutely magnificent interiors. Some, some of the most beautiful collections of bottles of spirits you've ever seen in your whole life, but but not but not too many people. Did you did you ask people to just clear out while you did your photograph? No, uh, I uh, I'm also a passionate hobby photographer. Okay, so all right. the, the pictures of the cocktails you see inside with the recipes, I shoot those pictures. But how did we get uh, it done? We just send it to all bar there is. We send it the mail and we said, yeah, if you agree, your number that's one of the 150 bars you have to visit before you die. Uh, but uh, could we have uh, copyright-free your pictures? Oh, yeah, Got it. That's okay. All right. Otherwise, it's, it's not possible uh, financially to... Uh, and I think the price in, 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 in Europe, the price is, is very reasonable for a nice book. Uh, it's, it's, I think it's very reasonable. And now, uh, due to Facebook, uh, Instagram... I already received a lot of hashtags on my name, and people, they, they, they used it as a bucket list. I had a guy who said, uh, Jürgen, give me five years, I promise you. And the guy, I, I, when he says it, I believe it because he has time, he has the money. Uh, he said, I promise you, give me five years, and I will come <laughs> back with a book. Every bar will be signed. And uh, I believe it. It's really, it's well, really. I sort of want to do that. I mean, I, I'm, I'm, we're not bar people, but I think that, that the book inspires you to want to go see these places. The decor is fantastic. Yeah, the, the story, the story goes, Jürgen, back in the 17th or 18th century, that an English gentleman decided that his mission in life was to drink a pint of beer in every pub in Great Britain. And he well, was, he my was, grandmother. He, he was on his second time around when he died. Uh, yes, but I think he, uh, he had a, a completely nice experience, I think. Eh? <laughs> I, I think, I think he died with his, I think he died with a smile on his face. <laughs> I don't think uh, well, uh, finally, I, I wish that for everybody that we could die with a happy feeling and a smile on his face. Whatever your bucket list is, whatever your dreams are, I think that's the most beautiful thing that we could do eh? and wish to each other. Now, how, how do you imagine that people would use the book? Aside from the friend we just talked about who's going to get every bar in the book to sign it, how in, in general did you think people would use it well, day to I day think, to day? Well, I think if I go to New York, uh, the book goes with me. Right. The book goes with me. And... Uh, you can see pictures, and honestly, a picture tells more than a thousand words. And I think a picture is the first thing to convince you to go. And if there are some nice words in it, some uh, nice words written by somebody who is passionate about his job and certain credentials, I think uh, it, it, it would be a very nice guide. Uh, for example, two months ago, we had uh, Great Buddha from New York, from uh, That Rabbit and Blacktail. Oh, yeah, we yeah, had, yeah. He, he was in our bar doing guest bartending. And uh, he said, Jürgen, really nice book that you made, so really the idea that you have, uh, really nice. So, uh, yeah, uh, I, I hope uh, it, it would help and inspire a lot of people. 
I, I think that is that's part of our job. Um, inspiring youngsters, inspiring people to visit, to travel, to discover nice things, to to meet new people. That's all about it. And uh, we've, we've actually been in some of these bars, I mean, uh, no, accidentally. <laughs> accidentally? <laughs> well, I mean. Do you go into a bar accidentally? <laughs> well, no, we're, yeah, because, I mean, we've been in the restaurants probably. The uh, the one in Ireland and the uh, castle, we were oh, there. Oh, Ashford, 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 Ashford Castle. castle yes. Yeah, and we were, of course, we've many times in the Nomad in New York. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and and that's wonderful all the way around. And some of these are quite odd, actually. I, I like the concept behind this. Uh, tell us about Humus and Hortense. Yes. In Brussels. Uh, well, um, I, I, I placed only five bars from Belgium in it. And yeah. people said, people who knows me, uh, they say, Jürgen, your own bar is not in... It, it should be in. I said, yeah, but you know, we have the Belgium noblesse. Uh, you, you're not going to put yourself on, on a podium. You're not going to do it. I think it's about others to give you credentials. And uh, I didn't do it for myself. Otherwise, I could make a book for my own bar. No, I did it to let people meet uh, the bartending. Because... That's the nicest part of a bar having a drink. Uh, you go there, there are a lot of people coming from all over places. They all have their own story. They all have their own experience. You don't know what is happening at that moment with the people in their life. And you're all gathering for the same, having a nice drink, having a nice moment for yourself. It's the same with wine. Wine is made to drink with the right people. It's not to keep in the cellar. Right. Well, you, some of these are surprising. What was the most surprising bar you encountered? Well, the most surprising... Um, well, I, in London, for me, I, I, I'm really a fan of real classic way. Uh, the real, let me say, the classic style. I, I like it, and that's for me the Savoy. Savoy. So I was just going to say right. the Savoy. Right, that's, that's a class act. You're right. If I go to Singapore, then it will be the Manhattan Bar. Uh-huh. That's you, funny. You feel the quality of the, the people, of the uh, ancient way of thinking, uh, the way that they look to something, the way that they want to approach it. It's really perfectionistic. But please, let's go to, to Nomad. In New York, or, or maybe uh, um, let's go to the Baxter You have so much uh, ambience. Even if you just enter the door, you can feel, you can smell, you can hear it. And you say, yeah, there is a certain vibe. And for me, sometimes I would, I would go to Jamaica when I'm with my wife. But sometimes you are with your friends. You're in a certain ambience. In a, you have a certain feeling. It's like wine. Today, I'm fan of Sauvignon Blanc. Tomorrow, I want something more full body of Chardonnay. It depends on it. It's like music. One day, you like that music. The other day, you said, no, I am in another way. I want a different kind of music. And that's nice. That's nice. Yes. The, um, the aviary is in here, of course. That's rather spectacular, isn't it? In Chicago. Yeah. Yes, for sure, yeah. I know uh, uh, we have to be honest. Uh, the modern way of bartending is in the States. Uh, yeah, it's have, molecular uh, gastronomy, yeah. You have such uh, also with uh, the rye whiskeys, with bourbon whiskeys, uh, the influence uh, a little bit more to the south from tequila and mezcal. Uh, we always say if it rains with you, we, we feel a drop of, of rain. So for a certain way, uh, I think a lot of tendencies are made in the States. And then it comes to us. It's certainly a bartending. Certainly. If we go to Geneva or Gin, okay, maybe that's more in our areas. Uh, uh, but, yeah, for the moment, tequila, mezcal, bourbons. Hey, you don't have bourbon in Europe. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. 
a little bit curiously enough, I discovered that one of our nephews. We have we have nephews in England who are twins, and 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 one of them is more of a drinker, and his favorite bourbon is Woodford Reserve. (laughs) I I was I was I was suitably impressed. So um, you know, although although I think Pappy Van Winkle is probably better. Well, Papa Ivan Winkle, yeah, it's... Papa Ivan Winkle has also his name, uh, Peter. Um, If you want to find a Papa Ivan Winkle of 15, 20, 20 years old, Mm. yeah, it's it's an experience to to have it, that you could taste it. But hey, you find a nice rye uh, 10 years old from Mithers, I I don't say no uh, for the moment. Funnily, funnily, funny you should mention Michters. I, I have a bottle of their, of their special ten-year-old, that I that I'm nursing towards emptiness. But I'm hoping I'll keep a little bit for a, for a while because we love the people from there. And any time they have a new expression, it seems like they want to send us one. Oh, always, always good to have a friend like that. Uh, keep them, keep yeah, them. For right. You have to keep them. Yeah, really, some of these are really surprising. Um, and then, in a way, not like there's only one included from Rome. But uh, Italian culture is not a cocktail culture. And the same, well, I was surprised with Athens because I didn't think that, that I, I don't remember a cocktail uh, bar in Athens at all seeing one. But I guess they're they're updating their experience, their social experience. I think it's this book is certainly, you have to see it, listeners, um, and, and see how useful it's going to be and how exciting it is to see all those bars out there that you're going to be traveling between and, and popping in and out of. Um, so thank you for going to the uh, trouble of writing this wonderful book. I'm sure it was a pleasure. Um, and, we, and we have a mission we have to go back to because we're, we're planning an upcoming program on the darkest of all spirits, rum. Yeah. And uh, um, so, so we have a, a tasting program that's underway, and it's almost, almost time for us to begin today's portion of that. So, Jürgen, thank, thank you so much for joining us. And no, thank you, thank you. Really, it's, it's an honor that I uh, really you could if you could see me blush right now. Uh, <laughs> yes, really, uh, the way that you talk about the spirits, about our same passion. Well, what could we wish for more as an author? What could we wish more? Um, I said, make a trip, take the book as a guide, enjoy as much as you can with family and friends. Make some new friends and enjoy it. Exactly. Well, this is really a, a, a giant book, and they tour for tourists everywhere. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you, and uh, maybe hope to see you one day in Belgium. I can recall talking to a number of people about what what they'd like to do when they grew up or when they retired or whatever it was. And a, a lot of them said, what I'd like to do is, is have a bar where I can entertain all of my friends. Yes. <laughs> and, and obviously, Jürgen's kind of like that. And, and, and the next guy, Carl Schumann, is even more so. So when we get back after the break, we're going to go bar hopping again. So don't go away because we'll be right back. Podcasting services for On The Menu Radio are provided by ASP Station, www.aspstation.net. Welcome back. And next up, as Peter indicated, um, there's a fun guy coming on. He's the kind you'd like to hang out with and go drinking with. In fact, um, he is the founder of the American Bar, Bar in Munich. We're talking to him in Munich. Uh, but, hold, but hold on a minute. Let's, let's make sure people understand just exactly how well qualified Carl Schumann is because probably the most famous bar in the world is Harry's, Harry's Bar in Venice. Yeah. There are Harry's Bars all over the place as well. But guess, guess what? Carl, Carl Schumann opened Harry's Bar in New York. Yeah. 
about 35 years ago, and he's he's been going strong ever since. And not only is he a bartender, he's also a mixologist in extremis. Yeah, and because, if, if because you want a book that's going to tell you anything you ever thought you needed to know, and even stuff you didn't know that you needed to know, this is the book. It's called it's, it's After called His Bar, The American Bar. The American Bar, and it's subtitled The Artistry of Mixing Drinks. And here's Carl Schumann. Okay. Okay, ch- listeners? Yeah, I hear you. I can hear you. Yeah, well, well, welcome to the program, Charles Schumann from Munich, Germany, where we're going to talk about something different than everyone else in Munich is talking about now, because everybody else is talking about Oktoberfest. Yeah. But, but, but in the land of beer and Oktoberfest, Charles, you decided to go down a different beverage route. Perhaps you can yeah. explain how, how you managed to get involved in the wonderful world of cocktails. You know, it's so long that I even can remember me. Huh? It's more than 50 years. Huh? And as we started, I started by working for Harris, New York bar. Oh, okay. Uh, okay, that, so there was a con- I knew there was a connection to Harris. Uh, yeah, I have, a bi- I have really a connection to Harris bar, but Harris bar in Munich is not existing anymore. No. Uh-uh. Okay, well, they still have one in So Venice. now it's... it's now, more than 35 years uh, now are, are gone as we opened Schumann's Bar. Schumann's Bar opened 1982. It's a long run. It's a very long road. And we started very, very modest. Uh-huh. And wh- why, did, why did you pursue this as, a, as an avocation? I've always, wa- I've always wondered how, how people decide on their careers and... Uh, have you know, I, I never, I never thought that I make a career, career in this business. Huh? I started okay. as many people before, and uh, yeah, and then after a couple of years, I started to think about the book because it was at this time very, very difficult to get old bar books. I had a a friend in New York City who bought some books for me. And then I started to make my my uh, my own uh, ideas about a book, and this was or this is, as you know, a very very successful book. Oh yes. Now, the, a, now the first the first edition was what year again? Uh, we uh, 1980 when won the first edition. Yes. I I uh, 1992 I think. I even don't know so long is it uh, <laughs> more than more than 25 years. And what the New York Times calls it the, the cocktail Bible. Yeah, yeah, it, it, it call it, and one break from New York says always, this is the only book for adults. Oh, <laughs> funny. Well, it, it's a, it's, because it's a, he thought to me, Charles, every book was full of uh, nice, uh, sometimes ugly uh, cocktail pictures, and you made the book without pictures and for us it many many uh, old partners not the new ones now uh-huh. said always this was the bible for us but now in, in e- but we sell it still but for each for each of the uh, for each of the cocktails of which which you enumerate literally hundreds there there is a glass next to that is is that the shape of the glass in which you believe this particular cocktail ought to be made yeah, yeah, we, uh, that, uh, the graphic designer said it. Okay, for me, now it's not so important which class you, you take, but as we started, we, 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 uh, we learned by very, very old bartenders, and they had the rules for the classes we should need, uh, we should take for the different cocktails. So, right. so we, uh, so we made always classes next to the cocktails, uh, recipes. Yeah. Now, how did you manage to collect so many? I mean, there, there are recipes. There are, there are literally hundreds and hundreds of recipes. Uh, you know, the the most of them they are classics. The most of them they are really classic. Huh? This is a classic bar bar book. This is because New York Times calls this book uh, 
up the Bible of drinks. Uh, yeah. there may, we, uh, we created a couple of new drinks. Sure. You can, when you are a, uh, a, a bartender who works very, very long in the business, there's no, uh, there's no problem for him to change the old recipes. And the old recipes are mostly changed in our book too. But uh, I, I took a lot of, uh, of recipes from old bar books. So I had, I had bar books which influenced me very, very, uh, influenced me a lot of. For example, a bar book, the Savoy cocktail book. Oh, right, yeah. Well, the Savoy Hotel, yeah. the Savoy Hotel, the Savoy, Savoy Hotel cocktail book. Then, uh, the cocktail book, we have a, a fa- we had, he's there now, a very famous German, uh, book, uh, cocktail writer. His name is Harry Schremli. Uh huh. Wow. He, infl- uh, I, 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 you know, I, uh, read a lot of books to, to have the ideas, uh, uh how I can make my cocktail recipes, huh? uh-huh. And if you see, uh, how I listed them. Uh, first of all, I listed them after the main spirit. Right, right. And then you have them in al- you have them indexed alphabetically as well, right? So, so you can't yeah, lose, yeah. you can't lose yourself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So brandy, gin, whiskey, whatever. Huh? After the main spirit. Huh? Yeah, but then I, I, I miss. I then I I, uh, I thought about the hours you can drink. Huh? <laughs> which, uh, which, yeah, sure, it's very important. Huh? Uh, an American bartender says, do you, "Did you see our film we made about the bar book? About uh, the bar?" Uh, yeah, really. We made a film. Huh? I don't know that. The film. Yeah, yeah, it's a very nice film. We said it to you. Huh? And in this film, uh, uh, a bartender says, uh, "Okay, in America, in New York, they drink the whole day." <laughs> start in the morning and they finish in the night okay but these people we didn't make this bar book bar book is made more or less for for people who have a certain culture in drinking uh-huh. now the, the the other thing that's interesting is that this this book isn't just a recipe book for cocktails I'm looking at page yeah. I'm looking at page 244 and on page yeah. 244 are the tools yeah. uh, that that are used in mixing cocktails, and they're yeah, uh. and they're all they're all, they're all very important because each of them has has a function and and if if you did I guess if you didn't have it then it wouldn't work. So for yeah, ex- so yeah. for example, you need a fruit squeezer, a, yeah. a, a grater. Yeah, sure. You a, know a muddler. A, a, a muddler. Yeah, yeah a mud- you, muddler you need a lot right of things. But, you know, nowadays everything changed a lot of, because many bartenders think they are very close to the kitchen. So oh, yeah, they yeah, use yeah. everything, f- they, they use everything from the kitchen. Huh? No, you okay, don't believe not, that, huh? Because no, that's no, a no. trend here. Okay, uh, I'm, 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 I'm working more in the kitchen. So I'm maybe uh, here because we have a, a, a big restaurant. With, uh, Schumann has a big restaurant too. So I work more in the kitchen, and I have a uh, couple of very, very good bartenders. Uh, they know more than me, I hope. Uh, and but I know more about kitchen than they know. <laughs> so, th- so we, we we really work very fast, I think. Uh. I I, I love I love this page. This is page two hundred and sixty-three, and the and the heading is please don't. <laughs> yeah, let, yeah. Let, let's do let's do the please don'ts. Please don't use stuffed olives in my <laughs> martini. Yeah, See, now, I like uh, I like stuffed uh, olives. Hold on a second. Please don't use vintage spirits for mixing. They are yeah. better. They are better consumed neat. Yeah, that's I agree with yeah. that. We, which is interesting because we we know because people have told us this that in fact when when the Sazerac the first cocktail. They say it was developed in New Orleans. The backbone, yeah. the backbone liquor was cognac. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure, they they started with cognac. You know why? Because Sazerac uh, was a cocktail of a Frenchman. Huh? Right, right. Of, yes. Uh, yeah, and and he 
He made salsa rock, like all the drinks at this time, were made, uh, were remedious, huh? Yes, uh-huh. yes. Interesting. Yeah, anyway. so he started uh, to make this cocktail. Uh, with, I, this salsa rock is one of my, my favorite drinks. It's it's one. Of, it's, it's Peter's it's, favorite it's drink. One, it's one of mine too. Yeah. Anyway, let's go on. Pl- yeah, pl- but, but you know, I drink it with whiskey. Yeah, you drink it with bourbon, or I have my southern rock with whiskey. Uh huh. Now it's funny. I, 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 I like it. I like mine with rye. Well, oh, it's I, I like it. I like my mine with. Okay, say with maker's mark. Okay, Related well, that's a, that's 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 a good choice. Anyway, pl- let's go yeah. on. Pl- please don't sell the most expensive drinks to customers who can't afford them. A good bartender can recognize this. So, so the the, the man, be, man the man behind the bar is a philosopher, is all all kinds of things, and uh, gets to know his what what it is people drink. I I remember I remember yeah, sure. you know if you have a, you know uh, uh, when you have a little bar. Huh? You should really, uh, you, 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 you should, uh, talk to the people, huh? And you should, uh, make them, uh, not drunk. You should, uh, not sell very expensive drinks when they cannot. You know everybody. You know when, uh, when, uh, that, uh, and this is, this is uh, your duty to tell to them, huh? Now, here's a beauty. Please don't mix gin and vodka in a cocktail. Uh, this is only Schumann. This is only me. <laughs> the, the devil doesn't like holy water. But I think a, a good a good gin can uh, uh, find disgusting when you mix a gin with vodka. I do too. <laughs> he's really he's really absent. Huh? Please don't try a cocktail with a straw or spoon before it leaves the counter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, have a look in the bars. Go in the bars. The bartenders they they, they have uh, straws. Huh? And, and try the cocktails, huh? And then they say, okay, in the kitchen, people do the same, but in the kitchen, nobody sees you, huh? In, uh, but in front of a guest, if, I, this is disgusting if you try a, a drink with a straw. Well, they're outlawing straws in America anyhow. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh. Now, tell me, is there a, a rivalry? Between beer lovers and cocktail lovers in Munich, you know, uh, unfortunately, we drink less beer. Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We drink less beer, and after the film, we made people really restart to drink cocktails. Huh? Huh, yeah. Uh, we should really send you the film. I, I, I tell Anton to send you the film, huh? uh, and then you make in uh, make a, a film. Uh, Evening in your place, right? Everybody needs to drink after the film. You go immediately to a bar and drink. <laughs> I'm sure. I, 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 you sound like fun. I, yeah. What, okay. What, 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 what is it you'd like the world to, to know the most about you? Nothing. Nothing. <laughs> Everybody knows too much about me. Because I have no Facebook, huh? No. I have no Facebook. Huh? We uh, we were uh, uh, chosen under the best 50 bars in the world. Really? But Congratulations. Very, yeah, but I'm very upset because there's so many coffees in front of us. Many American coffees, which are not cocktail bars at all. Uh-huh. And we are working so long and we have to place 43. A uh, shame. Uh-huh. Shame to the American because this these places were given by the... It's a kind of spirit about, you know? And uh, it's, it's normal that they... Uh, okay, forget it. Huh? <laughs> well, well it, it, it's, it's, it's really interesting. I, I, I just got to- totally fascinated by, by some of the insights you have here. For example, let, let, let's talk about Pisco. Chilean yeah. Pisco... Oh, you keep, you're in Pisco, too. Huh? It's made from a mix of numerous grape varieties... And it can be cask yeah. stored after distillation, but normally it yeah. just rests for a short while in flavor neutral tanks. Now, the pisco of Peru is different. Tell, tell us yeah. how. It's, tell us how it's different. You know, because pisco, the the uh, pisco, the, the 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 people from Chile say we make the best pisco, huh? Right, right. And the people from 
from Peru say we invented pisco, huh? <laughs> and it's yeah. normal, you know. They are very, very poor piscos, huh? They are really dangerous, huh? And they're very high-class piscos, huh? And pisco became very famous by our drink, which is called pisco sour. Right, 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 exactly. Yeah, yeah. This is a very, very famous pisco drink. And all over in the world, in the restaurants, they make biscos. Uh, I'm not a, a bisco lover, but bisco is a is a kind of of uh, of spirit uh, we uh, and and and, and uh, aroma like not really like, but it's rum, huh? Uh, is it? Yeah, well, By grapes. We, we drank it when we were in in Lima. It's, that's all you ever got, actually. Yeah, it's grape uh, grape spirit. Huh? Yeah. Well, anyhow, uh, do you see any trend that's even beyond your book as to what's happening with the cocktail scene coming soon? I hope person. I my 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 personally hope is that we go a little bit uh, back to the classic. Uh-huh. A little bit. Yeah. There are too many creations uh, and new uh, new ideas, uh, but when we come back to the classics, I say always everything was already av- uh, invented. Uh. Yeah, <laughs> and if you uh, yeah everything uh, everything was invented, and, and I think my, my personally idea of cocktails is uh, uh, okay. I had fantastic drinks. We had bartenders from Tokyo here. Uh, which had a guest ship for two days uh, in uh, in two months, uh, and they made us fantastic drinks with with very different aromas, uh, and they brought they brought herbs and plants uh, <laughs> from from Tokyo and uh-huh. and uh, from Fukushima. No, no, not from Fukushima. <laughs> Japan. <laughs> they, they brought. <laughs> All these plants with, uh, and they made us really, and everybody was very, very pleased. Uh, but I, 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 I was in, in, in London two days before to, this, uh, to celebrate the awards to be uh, under the best 50 bars in the world, mm-hmm. and I drank whiskey neat. <laughs> of course. This is my favorite cocktail. And you know, one one more thing, huh? I'm not. Uh, I stopped to. I stopped almost to drink wine. I'm back to the beer, huh? but I'm not back to the so-called craft beers, huh? mm. because many craft beers are really uh, over over overpowered with aromas. Huh? Uh-huh. Right, if you right. don't, uh, when you think about the beer which has uh, aroma of mango, what? Uh, <laughs> uh, Listen, I'll tell you one. We just had a new cocktail at a restaurant, and it was a wild mushroom cocktail. Yeah, yeah. With scotch. Come on, huh? <laughs> how about scotch and wild mushroom? And Peter told the bartender after he explained how he extracted this mushroom thing that he takes mushrooms and it, he puts some dry vermouth or water in them and sticks them in the oven, and you get the same flavor. <laughs> The juice tastes the same as this cocktail. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the next bartender brings brings the wood in the in, in the bar and makes a uh, I don't know what. Huh? <laughs> oh, dear. You know, that, uh, dear. Uh, one final thing to this to this to this thing, sir. Uh, I thought about this uh, this this uh, ideas of different of these bartenders. I personally think there are so good spirit makers, uh, whiskey makers, rum makers, gin makers. Uh, distillers, uh, they are so great in 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 in, in making this the things. Uh, why you are uh, uh, why why you are doctoring up all this? Uh? Yeah. Okay. Well. Any anyway, well, let's go to Schumann's American Bar in Munich very soon. Yeah, no, I, no I want to meet you, Charles. I yeah, think it'd be fun. You should come. You you need only a flight. We take care of everything, of everything. Okay. I cook personally for you. Wow. <laughs> yeah, not wow. Yeah, really. Well, you, you, you know, you may, you may be asking for something you don't realize we may end up on your doorstep, you know. <laughs> yeah. 
Charles, we, we, what, what should we say? Auf Wiedersehen, no? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Wiedersehen. Wiedersehen, really please come and send on, uh, Anton uh, uh, you, your address, please. Huh? Thank you. Yes, I will. Yeah, send, send the address to our... To our, to our uh, yes, we will. Yeah, we will. E- we will email you when it's going to air, and you can listen to the interview right off the site. And uh, yes, yeah. we will. So, thank you for taking the time to talk to us. Yeah, and and have a good thank day. You Enjoy yeah, Oktoberfest. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the night starts in our bar now. We have still sunny, bright days here. It's incredible. In October, we, 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 we never had days like today, yeah? Mm. Uh, we, it's too warm a little bit, I think. Uh? Climate so the change. Winter should, <laughs> yeah, yeah, the time change, really. Yeah. Tell that. Uh? Uh, I'm, uh, I'm, yeah, I'm not so, uh, I'm a little afraid. Nah? Mm. Don't be too afraid, Charles, yeah. and we'll talk to you again yeah, soon. No, 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 no I want to drink my whole life. Okay. <laughs> but not a lot. Not a lot. Yes. Okay. Uh, so, uh, hello to New York, huh? Yes, I will. Thank you. Yeah, okay. Uh, bye-bye. Yeah, okay. Bye-bye. Podcasting services for On The Menu Radio are provided by ASP Station, www.aspstation.net. We seem to have gathered um, an assortment of really comprehensive books. Uh, we're switching around to uh, something a little different here called uh, Tasting the Past, which tells us essentially the, the history of wine. Um, and uh, Kevin Vegas, uh, I mean, he's really researched this, and it's, it's just about everything you want to know about where wine came from. Boy, it's ancient, isn't it? <laughs> It sure is, but it's modern too. It's modern so, too. So here we go with Kevin. What? Kevin, and what's his what's his book name again? Um, Tasting In the, the past. past. Anne just paid me a great compliment, which I'm going to pass along to the guest we have on the line just now. She said, "You're a wine geek, or worse than that effect." Well, if I'm a wine geek, Kevin Bigos is a wine geek. To the nth degree. <laughs> to, to, uh, to the nth degree. And he, he knows something that I never even suspected. And that is that you can actually grow grapes from grape pits or seeds, whatever you call them. I, ne- I never knew that. I thought the only useful thing you could do with grape seeds was to, make, <laughs> was to make grape seed oil. But t- tell us the story of that one because I'm not entirely sure that I believe you, Kevin. Well, you can certainly grow grapes from the seeds, but you wouldn't get the same variety that uh, you were hoping for. A pinot seed will ne- not necessarily give you exactly the pinot uh, qualities that you're hoping for. Grapes are like apples that way. In yeah, case. I was just going to say that's like apples. Yeah, I, I, no, I didn't know that about apples. I, that's intriguing. Well, you, I mean, you, I, I now know that, in fact, just because you plant a pinot Noir seed, it won't necessarily give you Pinot Noir grapes. I believe you, because it's halfway through your book. Yes. So, so it must be, no, must be true. We've been, you know, we've, the people have been uh, growing vineyards and making vineyards by, you know, essentially grafting and cloning for thousands of years, we believe. Right, the, the, one, the one I always laugh about, and I've told a lot of sommeliers this, and they don't know the story. The re, there's a region in southern France called Mon, Monata Maria, so, well, Mountain Maria. And they grow a grape there called Pedro Jimenez. Mm-hmm. And you know the story, you know who Pedro Jimenez was? I, I actually don't know that story. Well, there, well, there you go. One, one up for Peter. It, it turns out that the original name was Peter Siemens. Uh. And he was a German mercenary who was invited to help the king of Spain, capture, recapture the last part of Spain from the Moors, which was, of course, Granada. So he, he just slipped a few cuttings in his suitcase mm-hmm. and went, went off to war. 
and planted the grapes or propagated them, whatever the right word is. And the Spaniards couldn't pronounce Peter Siemens, so it became Pedro Jimenez. <laughs> and the rest, the rest, as they say, is history. That's happened all over the world where people give the same great different names uh-huh. uh, for various reasons, either marketing or just uh, cultural appropriation or not being able to pronounce it. Can well, I take back and just have him start at, at, at the point, very beginning? At, well, I, I guess my question is, this is a very labor-intensive book that you researched, and it, it took, you, you said, 10 years or maybe more. <clears throat> what is the story you tell in, in the book about what started you on this um, this uh, journey, shall we call it? Sure. Well, uh, this for me, this book began 10 years ago in Amman, Jordan, when I tried an unusual wine from Cremason Monastery and Cellars uh, in Beth- that's based in Bethlehem. And I didn't know at that time that monks were still making wine in the Middle East. And when I did a little bit of research, I found out that they were using Jandali and Hamdani and Baladi grapes, which I'd never heard of. Uh, in other words, native grapes of the Middle East. And in the beginning, I was skeptical as to whether, you know, these grapes really existed, what did they really mean? But that started me thinking that I really didn't know much about the history of wine. I kind of grew up thinking the French invented winemaking, and they <laughs> did not. Right. So, see, that is what started you on this whole evaluation of the history of wine. And you That's, say, yeah, go ahead. That started me, but I also do a lot of science writing, uh, both medical and scientific writing, and I realized early on that people were starting to do DNA analysis of the grapevine genome and use other high-tech tools to figure out, literally, you know, the spices that people used two and 3,000 years ago. You know, they're using DNA to build a family tree of the grapevine, just like we could do it with our own genome and figure out who our ancestors were. So that fascinated me. Uh, The book is an equal mix of visits to wineries, which you'd expect but also talks with archaeologists and botanists and paleobotanists and chemists and geneticists uh, who, who talk about using science to tell these stories and even go beyond the myths. The myths are wonderful with wine, but it turns out sometimes the science is even more fabulous. Now, you said you were going to reveal or bust certain myths. What are the big ones that you busted? Well, several. I mean, it had been previously known that the so-called noble grapes um, you know, Chardonnay, Merlot, Pinot, and those. Some of them have very humble parents' origins. You know, they're not actually noble in any sense. Uh, there's hundreds of other grape varieties that can make good wine. But I discussed that some of the flavors we love, you know, the elusive terroir, which, you know, is often linked to soil, to limestone or flint. Some of the terroir flavors come from yeast, actually. It's a byproduct of fermentation. Uh, so, of course, the soil matters and the rocks matter, but we don't get those minerally flavors directly from the soil. You see, that is a so, big myth. You're right. Um, and then, the, to me, it was very interesting. You know, we've almost completely wiped out the history of Middle Eastern wine. Um, you know, the Oxford Companion to Wine, which is a great, great publication, which I love. It's fat. Said, <laughs> said flat out that, you know, winemaking disappeared from Israel after the Muslim conquest of 636 A.D., and it just didn't. Uh, you know, the Christians and Jews in the region kept drinking wine, and there are all these fascinating stories of a lot of the Muslims kept drinking wine. Yes, it was prohibited, but the equivalent is like, you know, did Americans stop drinking alcohol during Prohibition? <laughs> or, or have people stopped doing illegal drugs simply because they're illegal? So there's a whole genre of literally Muslim wine poets who are, Muslims in Muslim countries for hundreds or more than a thousand years talking about their love of wine. Yeah, the poets you cite are sort of interesting. Yeah, Muslim and Jewish wine poets of the Middle East as a whole a beautiful tradition. Now, you, you trace, the, if you like, the domestication of the grape to make wine back to the Caucasus region in in. In, I guess it is, is it in Asia, or is it still just a little bit in in Europe? You know, there's a debate over whether Armenia and the Republic of Georgia are in uh, 
the tip of Asia or in between Asia and Europe. They're right on that, you know, section in the middle of both of them. Uh, but, uh, yeah, that's there's pretty conclusive evidence that winemaking probably began in the Republic of Georgia about 8,000 years ago or nearby Armenia. And, and the tradition was then that the, the containers used for the fermentation and storage process were these rascally things called amphora. Right. Yes, and the, the Georgians call them quevri for some reason. Their okay. term is, but the, both are clay containers. You're absolutely right. Uh, well, they, they, they used it in um, Slovenia. Uh, what's his name? Yeah, there's actually a wine ma- winemaker on the border of Slovenia and Italy called Gravna. Yes. And Gravna Gra- tore up all of his, all of the floor of his fermenting shed and sunk amphora in it. And it's really funny to go there because in, in the garden of his house as you approach amphora. Yes. <laughs> and we now have, you know, I mentioned toward the end of the book, America now has its first amphora man- manufacturer, Andrew Beckham in Oregon is both a winemaker and a, a skilled potter who's turned out to, who's now making uh, commercial size amphora for other wineries. For other wineries. Uh. And, and is it catching on? Yes. He's, the business is apparently going well. Now, we, we met some people in, in Friuli, Venezia, Giulia. We met some winemakers who, who told us quite honestly, uh, we, we, can't, we discovered we just can't work with stainless steel. And they and they went back to concrete, mm-hmm. and uh, they it's, it seems like an unusual step. But I guess if it's right, it's right. If it's the right thing to do, it's the right thing to do. You know, it lends a different character, but it can be more subtle. It was much more subtle than I expected. Um, some of these amphora wines are still just very subtly different. They don't certainly have the oak flavor, but it's not like they're excessively clay or minerally. They just have a slight mineral tinge to them. And See, I think Grobner's wines are really different. Are they? Yeah. You don't think so? I think they are different, but I would still say they're not different in a, you know, some people expect the, the amphora wines to taste just very unpleasantly. Like clay. Yeah, and they don't. I'd say they are different, very different, but it's not in an unpleasant way. It's in an interesting way. Oh, I think he's an extraordinary skilled winemaker. I, d- I don't think there's any question. I don't think there's any question about he's it. He's just a scribble. And, uh, <laughs> I think I think the the amphora are just a part of his secret, really. Exactly. The bl- the blending has a must must have an enormous amount to do about it. Now we we have heard many people who say the University of California at Davis. Is a wonderful phenomenon, and, and an equally large number who say it's just a chemistry class. <laughs> where, where do you come down on that issue? Uh, I've heard both those arguments, and I was my experience is Andy Davis at UC. Uh, I'm sorry, Andrew Walker at UC Davis is a very broad-minded scientist. Uh, I opened the book with a quote from him saying, "Look, you know, it's just a myth that there are only a few." Yeah. noble grapes, that there are, you know, hundreds of local grape varieties all over the world. And that's very broad-minded to me. Yeah, I thought that was good. And, of course, most of the, the names, I mean, you know them, I don't. I, I mean, they're just to- totally new to me. Yes, I mean, we don't, many of them are not known outside of their region or native country, but uh, they're starting to be imported into the U.S., Georgian wines and Greek wines are pretty widely available. Um, now, when you say wines, do you mean wines or do you mean grapes? Uh, I mean wines, yes. You mean the, the, I mean the actual finished article in a bottle? Uh, I'm sorry, I don't understand the distinction you're talking about. Well, you, I mean, you can say you can say wine and you mean grapes, and you can say wine and you mean something in a bottle that you drink. Already. Oh no! I mean, I mean something in the bottle. Yes. Okay, then that's 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 what I was puzzling over. Well, that's what you were talking about, and yes. uh, you know, it's it, it's people like Alice Fearing and yourself, I guess, are helping in that process. It's because yeah, and, and and I'm finding people all over the country, you know, just interested in trying different things and interested in promoting different heritages and. Uh, and people are slowly starting to plant some of the different grape varieties, but you're right, it's mostly just importing the bottles of wine. They're still not. I think the big question in America is, is whether we can 
start to use some of the American native grapes to make good wine. And uh, what about this? Deirdre Heakin in Vermont has successfully done that and surprised a lot of people that, you know, an American wine grape could could make really a first class wine. I didn't I didn't even know there were wine grapes and I know I guess there've always been some in the Finger Lakes region but I but I didn't I didn't know they were actually native american grapes. Oh yes, there there're uh, more than a half dozen varieties. They've traditionally had some very bad aftertaste, you know, had a nasty taste, but they're starting to crossbreed them with the european uh wine grapes and coming up with some really beautiful grapes, uh, you know, that make really first-class wines. Now, when you say crossbreed, that, that that means you graft something onto something else, or...? It's, yes, it's a combination of grafting, uh, you know... And pollinating, uh, yeah. And pollinating, yes. Often they'll, they'll, they'll hand-pollinate one variety, uh, you know, directly into another. Now, I remember when we were in California... People in the people in the know in in wines there said because there were there were grapes in California b- before we brought these n- these old world classic varieties they were called mission grapes but they were not very good for making wine. Yeah, the the myth was that the Spanish missionaries brought them over, and clearly the Spanish missionaries did bring over grapes in the 1600s. Uh-huh. But <coughs> excuse me, but those varieties probably died out. Um, and did try some crossbreeding with wild American grapes, but people didn't have enough knowledge to do enough breeding to, you know, keep the good wine qualities and, and breed out the bad tastes. Now tell me, you know, we were talking about Randall Graham. I mean, what do you think of his quest for this brand new grape? Great. Um, I think he's trying the toughest method possible, which is basically random letting nature uh, you know, take its course and seeing what comes out. Uh, that could yield great results, but it's, uh, he says himself that it may not yield anything during yeah, his lifetime. Um, so, you know, this is a 20, 30 year project, and so hopefully there are people that, you know, continue, uh, continue it. Yeah, I mean, uh, to get a new apple takes 20 years. But, uh, you know, the other way is to use science to identify some of the, the great qualities and, um, you know, speed up the breeding. And it's not genetic, it's not genetic modification. It's just using DNA to help identify which grapes have the bad flavors. <clears throat> Excuse me, which grape have the off flavors. Oh, I follow uh, you. Yeah. Okay. So you, so, so you, uh, you isolate the, the grapes that for some reason don't taste good. And yes. then, you, then you figure out their DNA profile, and then you get one you like, like a like a Pinot Noir from Burgundy, and you compare those genes, and you say, "Well, I can see the difference." Well, they've gotten to the point where they're identifying flavors down to the particular part of the genome, just like you know we can identify where eye color comes from. They're also identifying exactly where in the genome certain flavors come from. Um, you know, we know now what the chemical is that gives Syrah its peppery flavor from DNA analysis, you know exactly what that's doing. So oh, wow. That's makes, a, that makes it a lot easier to start to breed, cross-breed new varieties um, when you have that information. What do you expect will come of all this research you've done? I think there's a big battle underway that people are both turning toward traditional methods, the amphora that were thousands of years old, yeah. and then some of the industry is turning toward this high-tech. Uh, I visited Chateau smith Lafitte in uh, Bordeaux. Mm-hmm. They use satellite imagery to decide when to harvest different portions Holy. of the vineyard because <laughs> because the grapes express different chemicals at levels of brightness. So they're literally using satellites and they have optical scanners that in the winery that look kick out uh, diseased or bruised berries. But on the other hand, they also use organic farming methods and, you know, make a very beautiful traditional uh, Bordeaux wine. So they're you're seeing this interesting mix between really old-fashioned, literally thousands of years old tradition, and ultra-high-tech. Yeah, you've got people like Cullen Estates in Western Australia, and Vanya Cullen, who's the family member who now owns that whole venture, who said that, that uh, biodynamic winemaking saved her vineyard. Yes, she did. She said, she said our yields were dropping and dropping and dropping, 
we couldn't afford to farm anymore. We went biodynamic, and all of a sudden, we're back in the game. Yes. Well, somebody who was who told us that, um, uh, uh, what's his name, Randall Graham adopted biodynamic because he'd like to run around naked in a full moon. <laughs> One last thing we should, we should talk about on the subject of wine. because it, You know what, because before it, you do that, I think that you ought to get the name of the book because we haven't even done that. Oh, oh. Tasting the Past, the Science of Flavor and the Search for the Origins of Wine by Kevin Bigos. And now say your, what well, you were well, saying. You're the other one who's supposed to do the titles and all that kind of stuff. You did it. You, 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 hand, you hand the books. Anyway, anyway, where where do you come down on global warming? Yeah, that was or, my next question. That's good. Uh, what, what is well, that? it's clearly already impacting uh, grape right. production. Uh, Jose Villamo notes that in Burgundy, Pinot Noir is already all, almost out of its optimal range of harvest. So winemakers are starting to openly struggle with this. Uh, I mean, you can debate all you want what the causes are or where we'll be in five or 10 or 15 years, excuse me, but growing seasons are already changing for all crops. Yeah, well, look at this stuff in in the U.K. I've never thought I'd ever see it. Hold on a second. U.K. champagne. So what you're you're telling us is that uh, Burgundy Burgundy might be in trouble as as a major Pinot Noir producer. Well, the way that Jose Villamo put it, and he's the co-author of the great wine grapes book written uh, with Jensis Robinson, <coughs> at a certain point, I think fairly soon, uh, Burgundy winemakers are going to have to choose between <coughs> some more ex- uh, aggressive uh, growing or monitoring practices or maybe breed in a heat-resistant gene into Pinot. Now, to me, that's just old-fashioned grape breeding. I mean, the, the idea that Pinot just sprung from the hillside uh, on its own magnificent origin is ridiculous. Pinot is a result of humans choosing out wine grapes for thousands of years. You know, we now know that people were selecting grapes for flavor five and six and even 8,000 years ago. So we've always done that, picked out the biggest berries, the tastiest berries, the flavors we love. So I don't see why we wouldn't try and just add a little bit of genetic material, just from normal crossbreeding, not genetic modification, not anything to do with pesticides. If you have one grape variety <clears throat> that is heat resistant, why don't you crossbreed that with your classic Pinot, keep the classic Pinot taste profiles, but make it more able to survive these hotter temperatures. And uh, the reverse is already happening. University of Minnesota is making cold-tolerant grapes, which is why... British Columbia and uh, Ontario and even Nova Scotia of vineyards now. They're the ones that are doing all the the apple stuff too because they needed yeah. winter apples. Now the yeah. in, the interesting thing here is that California is now growing lots and lots of Pinot Noir. Now you you would think I would think simply simply inside my head without without having the kind of knowledge that you have that in fact it's really too hot to successfully grow Pinot Noir in California, but then the Cal- your Californians will tell you, but the foggy, the foggy nights bring the temperature all the way down, so Pinot Noir is happy. Yes. I mean, is that is that a correct way to describe it? That is, but I think everybody, as I said, every region in this country and around the world is seeing temperatures slowly creep up, growing seasons change, so yes, California is different. It, uh, it's fairly southern, but it still has that cool air off the coast and the mountains and some nice rainfall. So, yeah, they're growing to you know successfully there now, but, uh, you know, what, 20 or 30 years will bring, that's where it gets iffy. A guy, a guy we really admire is an Australian called Dr. Andrew Pirrie. I don't know whether you know him or not. I don't, I'm sorry. He... he we thought we thought he was a doctor, doctor. Yeah, he's not. He was like, the first, like, like the owner of Elk Cove. It turns out he was the first Australian to get a doctorate in enology. Yeah, and they, they, in they, they, they have a they, they have a wine school similar to Cal Davis. In fact, they have two. There's one in South Australia, and there's one in New South Wales. And, but the 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 word official word in Australia was you cannot grow grapes successfully to make wine in Tasmania. Yes. And he said, basically, F you, 
I think you're wrong. And he said about planting Pinot Noir and Chardonnay and making it. I just wanted to say that uh, to the listeners that there's so much in this book, we've just barely touched the tip of it. Um, If you want history, uh, culture, um, flavor profile, science, uh, anecdotes, interesting characters, all of this is in this book by Kevin Bigos, uh, Tasting the Past. It's a it's a fabulous. Well, it's you're, you're very kind. It's been great to talk to you, and uh, I, w- I wish we could talk about the whole book, but I guess that would give it all away. <laughs> it's a fabulous fa- fireside read for yes. for, the, for the winter that is only a few months away. I don't say for, that for the for those who love their wine like ours and like Kevin. Kevin, thank you so much for bringing your knowledge to our program. I'm sure our listeners will be absolutely delighted to hear what you thank have to you say. Thank you so much. Uh, thank you for having me on. How about your website? Uh, just KevinBigos.com. Great. So if you're a wino or a cocktail maven, after today's program, you you don't need to know anything else. <laughs> we're, we're so glad we were Get able... those books. They're going to help. Yeah, we're, we're so glad we were able to bring these illustrious gentlemen of, of beverage to you today. And uh, we hope that you'll enjoy and that you'll join us again same time, same next week. You never can tell what we're going to be talking about. So dial us up and then you'll find out. And in the meantime, bye-bye.